welcome to Soundboard, the Steinway & Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. I'm your producer and host, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at Steinway & Sons and for the online music magazine, listenmusicculture.com. My guest today is Drew McGarry, a writer and novelist best known for his work as a columnist for Deadspin, a sports website from which McGarry last winter resigned en masse, along with nearly 20 other writers and editors, when they were told by management to stick to sports. 17 of those quitters, McGarry included, have now launched a new subscription-only sports website called Defector. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and his guest and do not purport to reflect the opinions or views of Steinway & Sons. Drew, I do not have MLB or NBA access from Berlin, where I live, but I will occasionally watch the Bundesliga on Amazon.de Prime, where there is no fake crowd noise or fake crowd members. And I have to say, I really enjoy it. I feel like I'm getting a glimpse behind the scenes. I love hearing players talk to each other on the pitch. It feels super intimate. And it's also hilarious now when people take dives and there's just crickets and dudes like <laughs> standing there with their hands on their hips, you know, shaking their heads. I watch it here in, uh, in America, too, because it was one of the first sports that came back on the TV during quarantine. And it was also it was before, like, I think when EPL came back, they had fake crowd noise already ready to go. And they actually did a very good job with it. But Bundesliga did not have that. And so you got the empty stadium. And I remember the quality depended on the stadium. And one person, one person who was not me, who was on Twitter, was like, it sounds like they're playing at an indoor pool, That's which right. was exactly right and haunted me. But also, like, it sort of got across the point that these people were in rather strange circumstances trying to play a game and taking it very seriously. And I, I enjoyed that, even though I like fake crowd noise. I liked the sort of the curiosity of it. And I liked being reminded of when I took my kids to use sports, which I haven't done in, oh, half a year. Half a half a goddamn year. My daughter's about to restart soccer, so that's exciting. You're in the right country. <laughs> Your wife's German. You have an opportunity, maybe, uh, at some point, make that shift. My wife is German. My friend's getting married in Germany next summer. So like, I was like, well, why don't we just go, and then we don't come back? I can help you through that process. Just be ready for forms, because they love them. They love them over here. Drew, you and I are about the same age. Let's talk about the shift that happened in the media landscape in the 21st century. Sure. My first year in college, our dorms were hardwired for internet, which is hilarious to think about now. And I worked for startup websites as early as 2001, while I was also stringing concert reviews at night for the Newark Star-Ledger, which I think then was the fifth biggest you know, circulated newspaper in the country. Oh, wow. I used to know nine people at the ledger. I now know one. Yeah. So, (laughs) right. About 11% left. In around 2009, I remember Gawker chronicling the great magazine die off, which is also when we launched Listen Magazine, which is now online at listenmusicculture.com. So for a while, there was a print is dead thing happening. And then there was this sort of uneasy coexistence between print and online media. And I mean, print isn't exactly dead now, especially specialty print publications and one-offs. Those seem to be flourishing. Anyhow, you and I and many of us 
have maintained our feet in both online and print media. What say you, Drew McGarry? Well, to me, there's been two two transitions, really, because I, I started working at Deadspin, I want to say around 2006, 2007. And at the time, it was it was very much the same ethos that The Athletic has now, where it was like, ah, the newspapers are old and fusty and stupid, and we're going we're gonna to take their place, and there's going to be a place for them anymore. And I remember we were sort of butting heads with them at the time. There was an infamous feud we had with Buzz Bissinger. Anyway, so the, the point was, you know, we're here to, to kill off all the old guard and all that stuff. And what happened instead was that, you know, I, I graduated to print when I, when I took a job at GQ. And, you know, all the newspapers and, and all of those magazines need to beef up their online presence. So blogging and journalism essentially sort of merge together in an, an easy coexistence, like you said. But then the thing that happened after that uh, was Facebook and Twitter. And really, I mean, really right around the time of Trump's election, it became crystal clear that social media was going to kill off all of it and essentially has in a lot of ways, unless you know, unless your paper is owned by literally the richest man in the world and in history, these places are not necessarily viable because Facebook and Twitter, I mean, really Facebook essentially stole all of their their views. Stole all of whose views? Like all the content you could read at a, a newspaper or a blog or a magazine was posted onto Facebook and read within the Facebook ecosystem and people didn't even bother to go to the site. Like I remember The Onion had an article that said, report, we don't make any money unless you click on the headline. So what The Onion said, you know, 60% of the revenue we should be getting is actually going to Facebook because people are just reading it there. And we don't like working for Facebook and we're sick of doing that. And, you know, I, I think people feel that discouragement even more now because so many people have been laid off. I mean, we're talking thousands and thousands of jobs here in the United States. And because Facebook is essentially an alt-right operation here in the United States. So, you know, if you combine those two things, it, you know, it makes for an extremely dark and barren landscape. And, you know, when you compare that to the attitude I came in with in 2006 or whatever, you know, you, it, it feels like, you know, sort of the monkey's paw wish, you know, here's what you wanted. This is what you asked for, wasn't it? And you also said my least favorite word, which I unfortunately have to own now, which is content. I used to be a journalist, I was a critic, I was a writer, and now I produce content. This right. podcast that we're making is content. It's Steinway content, and it will be linked to on various social media by Defector, Right. Uh, I hope, right? And that's how the game is played. So we can say this, we can talk about it, but it's like, yeah, you got to have a Facebook presence. Yeah, you got to have an Instagram account, and you have to tweet about it, and it has to be online. And it has to be in Spotify and on iTunes, right? So now it's like when you even make one thing, you have to have seven different iterations of it so that it can live on all these platforms. Yes. The platforms themselves that have become the money makers and the content is just like the burger that you're putting into their bun. Yeah, that's right. And someone at Current Affairs wrote about the fact that, you know, the right wing sites they get enough traffic from Facebook that they can they can have a viable business model while operating for free. Whereas uh, the Times and the Post and us at Defector, you know, we're, we're going to be on a subscription model, have to go on a subscription model. So the headline was, the lies are free, the truth will cost you, or it's the, the other way around. With that in mind, it, 
even though it's a big week for us because Defector's launching and we're, we couldn't be more excited. You know, we have no illusions about the landscape we're, we're entering into where truth becomes sort of this luxury product, which is a terrifying thought. I know you've talked about this on your podcast, how as guys in our early 40s, we we now have to embrace the paywall after spending decades trying to figure out how to get past them. But the, Oh, yeah! <laughs> but this notion that, oh, ads will pay for the articles is now false. We're back to the subscription model that newspapers had back in the day. I mean, yes, they had ads too, but that was my first job was delivering newspapers at the crack of dawn on a Sunday. And people paid for them every day, monthly. Yeah. I used to buy the post on my commute. Like I would walk to work when I lived in Manhattan. I'd read it while I was walking, like like a precursor to staring at your phone while you're walking. <laughs> and, uh, you know, like I used to be like, oh, it's 50 cents. Why wouldn't I do that? How long has it been since you bought the post? Uh, it's been 20 years since I bought the post. Yeah. Everything old is new again. Yep. <laughs> Everywhere I turn, I'm bitten by disgusting irony. It's terrible. <laughs> borrow a German expression, wohin, where do we go from here? And sounds like Defector is betting that pay, the paywall is the answer. And I can't disagree with that strategy. There's really no choice. I mean, it was, and I, I said this, that, you know, the, the operating model, if you want your website to be free, you know, your choices are the site looks like because it's cluttered with ads or the copy reads like because you've gone the full alt-right or you make no money. Like those are your options. And so, you know, we didn't want to do any of those things. So in other words, to, to do it right, we had to ask people to pay for it. Fortunately, the, the work that we had done collectively as a unit at Deadspin over the decade prior had engendered enough goodwill that people knew that we were going to give them a good product at Defector. So we've already got a substantial subscriber base, which is good because we all want to make money and eat. I have signed up to be a yearly reader. Oh, thank you. I get paid for my comments, so I just can't in good conscience pay to be a commenter. But frankly, it's great. I don't want the added responsibility of being clever on yet another platform. Right. I just can't handle it. Right, yeah. But let's talk about pre-defector. Yeah. Let's back up a bit. Oprah Winfrey said the only thing you can sell is authenticity. I think that's true in writing. I think comedians get applause breaks during their sets when something rings true. There's even a hacky aphorism. It's funny because it's true in the stand-up comedy world. So Gawker, which I followed avidly as a member of the media back when it was a, an inside media blog, Gawker developed this reputation for snark. Snark became this buzzword. Right. And the voices at Gawker argued that snark was actually shorthand for speaking truth to power and to ferret out hypocrisy where things didn't ring true. Right. And I think beyond Gawker, that was sort of online media's role in general in the beginning was to call out the ridiculousness at long established publications, e.g. the New York Times. Yeah, there was a stodginess and a, a remove 
I don't like to use the word elitism because that's already been co-opted by the right wing here in the U.S. and all that. But, you know, there was a, a sense that, you know, the people delivering your newspaper columns back in the day were being paid a handsome amount and never, ever dared to be rude. That, I think, has been one of the more, one of the greater drawbacks that still is a problem in the media environment here in America because Trump, he's doing everything wrong. He's getting people killed. And yet I got to, you know, I, I got to go to the New York Times and the headline is always couched in much more genteel terms than that. And that genteelness is killing us here. What I also don't like, and I've posted this on Facebook, a lot of good that does, but <laughs> this Trump misstates, Trump exaggerates, Trump delivers mistruths. No, he he's just lying. Oh, yeah. 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 Everything is couched in euphemism, you know, racially charged and all that stuff. And it's just not, it's a, it's a poor way of getting truth across. It may be technically true that a misstatement of Trump's is a misstatement, but you're not really delivering the full effect of how egregious the lies are when you do that. And that's the problem. That is its own form of uh, deception, in my opinion. In, in addition to people, uh, journalists, just going ahead and letting Trump and his minions say what they want to say unchallenged until well after the fact and everyone has left the room. So, you know, that's, there's, there's two real problems going on and we'll never approach things that way at defector. I don't, I don't want to get into salesman mode here. I did not have a journalism degree. Uh, I became a journalist almost entirely by accident, but I've learned enough in my, you know, decade plus working in it uh, to know and understand, you know, what, what the faults are with the sort of traditional model and how stubbornly and, you know, damagingly people who run it are clinging to it even now, still, as, as our country is, is falling apart. And, you know, it, it's very draining and, and it, it's hard for me to think about at times. I, you know, I don't want to say I lose sleep over it, but I do think about it and it bothers me. And it's, how can you not? Let's go to Deadspin, which, which is the precursor to Defector. Your Deadspin claim to fame which you've dragged through other homes, is the fun bag. Yeah. The lexicon of which I would argue positively infected Deadspin and online journalism in general. I still say no one denies this to people in texts. Right. That's a that's a total McGarry ripoff. Whether they get it or not, I don't care. I have to, I got to keep it going. I appreciate it. Your strength and advice giving for this column uh, and, and the ranking of, of sundries or whatever. For me, it lies in thinking a couple steps further than than I would think and that I imagine a lot of folks would think. Give me the fun bag origin story and then tell me about the demise of Deadspin and the launch of Defector, please. The fun bag is just, a, just me answering emails in a column, which is not, you know, not exactly a novel format that's been done elsewhere. Over a decade ago, AJ Delario was the editor of Deadspin at the time, I said, why don't I do uh, a mailbag? He said, okay. And, you know, the, the only ground rules I had, and they sort of were, you know, they sort of evolved organically, were I wasn't going to answer a question just to make fun of the question. I answer earnestly as I can. And then also, you know, I tried to go underneath the superficial presentation of how I feel about things and how I really th feel about things. So I think when you're right, you know, there, you know, you have to be willing to be vulnerable and you have to be willing to go a few layers underneath where, where you are in just normal conversations so that people, that's the way people connect to you and to your writing is, you know, when you talk about 
genuine fears you have, especially if they're like unfounded or stupid. Like I've gone to my basement in the middle of the night and like remembered like the end scene and re- the, uh, the end twist scene of Psycho and, you know, rushed upstairs like because I was scared at like 43. And, you know, so so it's always been important in my mind to write personally, not as a way of drawing attention to myself, because I think that was a big thing with like when Thought Catalog was a thing that people were just sort of TMI to TMI. But to, you know, to sort of dig down and, and think about how you really feel about things, because it's, you know, you hope or you think that maybe other people have felt the same way in the past. So, you know, that was how the fun bag evolved. That's still sort of the way I approach it. I hope I'm still good at it, but but I've been doing it for a long time now. I will tell you though uh, that the you know transitioning to Deadspin, you know that that became sort of a feature of Deadspin, and toward the end uh, when we were when we were purchased by Great Hill Partners and they installed a new executive editor, one of the things that he suggested in a meeting to my boss at the time, Megan Greenwell was that the fun bag not be on Deadspin because it was not strictly sports related. Mm-hmm. Hashtag stick to sports. Yeah. And, and Megan was like, well, where would it go? And he was like, I don't know, maybe life hacker. And then, you know, we'll splice it in. And it was just, it was emblematic of, of the ways that they just failed to understand what Deadspin really was at the time. You know, it, you know, we were a sports site. We were 95% of our, our posts were about sports. You know, the 5%, we're, you know, we're tangential and, you know, us dicking around and, and, you know, occasionally serious posts about off subject matter. But, you know, we, we had a, a relationship and a history with readers where they trusted us to, to venture off topic whenever we felt the inclination to do so. And so, you know, I don't think these people really understood that trust at all. If they did, they didn't give it. Um, and the fact that they didn't give it was, you know, really sort of the, the bigger problem. The popular narrative right now was that we were handed an edict, uh, a memo to only write about sports, which is true. And we all blanched at it, also true. But that was just symptomatic of a, of a, a relationship that we knew was deteriorating and we knew would blow up. And it, it did in October, November 2019. You got the gang back together. We did. For Defector. All my favorite guys and gals. Are here for Monday night. No, are here for... (laughs) All your rowdy friends, yeah. Are here for Defector. Not everyone who quit came aboard for Defector because some of those people got jobs. Sure. And so there are, I believe... Wait, hang on. I can look. Uh, There are 17 of us. Yeah, 19 or 20 of us quit. Uh, So only there are only a couple, uh, like people like Dom Costantino and and Gabe Fernandez... Who, who took jobs elsewhere and stayed in those jobs for reasons that were fun. And no one, none of us were grudging. And we wish them all the best of luck. Of course, of course. And then the rest of us stayed together and like had a Slack channel and essentially carried on as if we still had a website, even though we did not have one. <laughs> you kept the Slack. That's fantastic. Yes. Like we Slack are. is the bridge yep. between uh, the sites. Yeah. We, I love it. In fact, we, yeah, we, we started a new Slack. We sit in that Slack. And, you know, we, we communicated as if we still had a website, even though we didn't. We didn't even have jobs. But now we do have a website uh, starting this week. And we can, you know, it's fun to to talk to each other now. And instead of saying, I wish we had a site for this, we can actually write about the stuff we're talking about. I can also highly recommend uh, The Distraction, which is a, uh, I won't say it's a reboot of the Deadcast, but it does feature uh, David Roth and Drew McGarry. Um 
Drew's enthusiasm is uh, balanced by Roth's uh, terrifying eloquence. (laughs) (laughs) It's one of my, like, he'll just bust out with, uh, yeah, the, the vicissitudes of the, Cowboys kicking game is is on a conspicuous collision course with the Giants' uh, revivified uh, offensive schema, and Drew will be like, "Yeah, <laughs> exactly." <laughs> yeah, Roth is Roth is very cerebral. He's also a uh, a he's a better writer than me. a lot of us are writers for a reason. You've heard me stammering over my words on this podcast. That's because we are generally more articulate in the written word, but Roth seems to be able to pivot back and forth with great ease. Yeah, he's got a very, very fast mind and very – that's nice because he is um, – he's very eloquent but also uh, a filthy pig. So it's nice <laughs> to have those two those two in conjunction. Well, I'm ready for some defector. Drew McGarry, thank you so much for joining me today on Soundboard. And I'm looking forward to what the gang does next. Thanks for having me on, Ben. Listening to Soundboard, the Steinway and Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. We heard clips from Over Now by Allison Chains from the album MTV Unplugged, Allison Chains Live on Columbia Records, and from Don't Box Me In by Stuart Copeland and Stan Ridgway. Check out Stuart Copeland's Soundboard episode wherever you pod your casts or at steinway.com/soundboard. Visit Defector at defector.com. Our intro and outro music is Philip Glass's Mad Rush, performed on a Steinway Model M by me, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at listenmusicculture.com. Question for the podcast? Message me on Facebook at Soundboard, or hit me on the gram at Soundboard Podcast. Thank you for listening. <laughs>